Okay, we'll get started. Well, we are continuing a series called Encounters with Jesus, and this morning we're going to talk about what does it look like to be a friend. More specifically, what does it look like to be a good friend, maybe even a best friend. And one of the things I love about my kids, they have clearly defined best friends. Maybe your kids have the same thing. Maybe you remember back to your elementary days. You know, with Ellie, she's in first grade, and it's really clear. When you're in the best friend category, they actually share uh, dollar bills for ice cream. That's a big sacrifice when you're a first grader. Sometimes Ellie will swap shoes with her best friends. She'll come home wearing a new set of shoes, but that's because they're in the best friend category. But then you start getting older, you move into high school, college, and what constitutes a best friend, it starts to change, right? So in high school, it's, you know, that person who always likes your Instagram post, or you always wanted to invite for spend the night parties, the person who always gives you rides to the party, or, uh, you know, after the ball game, you get to college, usually your best friends, they might be your teammates, they might be your fraternity brothers, your roommates, your biology study partner. Or maybe it's just that girl, you go through a messy breakup, and that girl who's just taking your side and says that that guy stinks, and she stays up late with you and spends time with you. And then you become an adult, and it gets a little gray, doesn't it? We don't have like these clearly defined best friends. If you're married, hopefully you'd say your spouse, you know, is your BFF, your best friend. But then we start finding best friends in different places. You might work with them. You share a department. You might work out with them. They're like your workout buddy. They give you a spot on the bench. Or maybe we just cheer for the same ball, ball team. But the point is this, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to look at five best friends, okay? Five kind of ride or die, a, you know, just lifelong friends. And we're not going to talk about BFFs, right? That's best friends forever. We're going to talk about BBFs. And look, this probably won't catch on. This won't be something you ever, you know, tweet out. But we're going to look at a BBF, a biblical best friend. I know that's kind of lame. It's the best I could do, okay? It's not going to go viral, but I want to define what a biblical best friend or a good friend looks like. Let's go to the next slide. And here's what the sermon's going to be about, this idea of what a good friend or best friend is. It's someone who just says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to bring you into the presence of God. Do you see this? A good friend, a BBF, come on, let's get it to catch on, is someone who just says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to bring you into the presence of God. And so the passage we're going to look at this morning is in Mark 2, very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. This is early in the ministry of Jesus. So at this point, about all Jesus has accomplished as a traveling minister or evangelist, he's chosen 12 disciples, so his crew, his best friends. He's preached a few sermons, he's healed a few people, and sort of the word's getting out. His stock is on the rise. He's becoming a little more popular. Here's what I would liken it to. It's almost like when, when the small town guy, you know, has their first number one hit or finally gets played on the radio. They're getting some notoriety. They're getting some popularity. And then usually they say, I'm going to do a homecoming tour. And that's what we find Jesus doing. He gets a little bit of celebrity status and he says, I'm coming home. I'm going back to my hometown. And this is where the story picks up. So read with me in Mark 2, and we're going to talk about what it looks like to be a good friend. It says this, uh, and when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And when he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose immediately. He picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay, so we're gonna talk about what it looks like to be a good friend, but before we do, you gotta understand how homes were built in the ancient Near East. Let's go to the next slide. So back in the ancient Near East, you basically had one big room. Anybody into the open floor plan? Okay, that was your only choice back then. This is like a loft apartment It's one big room, and very often they would have an outdoor staircase going to the very roof. Now, more than likely, this is a big party, okay? It's packed out. It's shoulder to shoulder, and the house is filled with scribes. Now, these are highly religious people. These are experts when it came to Scripture and actually knowing the law. And then we meet this man. He's a paralytic. This means he's paralyzed. And more than likely, from his birth, he's never been able to move. Now, I know you probably have loved ones or friends or families who might be bedridden, or maybe they're constricted to a wheelchair, but for the most part, none of us have ever experienced paralysis. So let's do a little experiment in maybe empathy at this moment. I want you to think, just for a moment, use your imagination, what's your favorite movement, okay? What's your favorite way just to move your body, okay? You might be some, like, die-hard, exercise-freak. Okay? And you're like, it's CrossFit, or it's jogging, or it's pickleball, but I love to move this way. For some of you, you're like, man, I'm not a jock, I'm not a meathead, I love to spend time outdoors, I'm a hiker, or maybe you're a gardener. Some of you say, bump the outdoors, I'm an inside guy, okay? Well, at the very least, you like to use your hands to move one page to the next of the book you're reading. You like to move your Xbox controllers, or maybe even move your remote control. Think just for a moment, what would it be like to never be able to move? How would that affect you? How would that impact you emotionally to know that from the very beginning, day one, that you've never even moved a muscle, you've never hugged, you've never shaken somebody's hand, you've never danced at a wedding? And look, there's no cure for paralysis today, and there wasn't back then in the ancient Near East. So it would seem like this situation was hopeless. And the bad news is this, this man did not have a cure. But here's the good news. This man had four good friends. This man had four good friends, and we're gonna examine what it looks like to be a good friend. Point number one is this, good friends have hope. Good friends have hope. I mean, you can almost imagine these guys, use your imagination. They're sitting in their bachelor pad at a table, they're having a conversation, and they're saying maybe. Just maybe if we can get our boy in the same room as Jesus, what? A miracle would happen. Something amazing could occur. Okay, I'm the benefit of a conversation like this. 
Lee and I are about to celebrate 10 years of marriage, okay? Did you know this? That we were actually set up by a couple right here in the church, Dan and Allie Moffitt, and at some point, they actually said, hey, you know, Ben's all right, Leah's amazing, but maybe if we got them in the same room, okay, something miraculous would happen. Leah would look his way, okay? Ten years later, we got two kids, appreciate it, Dan and Allie. But you can almost imagine these guys, I mean, almost like young guys just sitting in this house, you know, bachelor pad, clearing the pizza crust off the table, you know, uh, moving the dirty laundry to the corner of the room. It was almost like the trap house these Western Georgia guys live at, okay? But they're almost having this conversation. They're like, bro, Jesus is in town, and he can heal our friend. And one guy says, man, this is our only chance. We got to do whatever it takes to get our boy named Jesus, near Jesus. Another guy pounds his fist on the table, and he says, let's do it. Let's come up with a plan. And so they start thinking, well, what are we going to need? We've got we to get a stretcher. And then we got to figure out where Jesus is, where this home is. And then we're going to have to walk across the town, knock on that door, boom. We'll be face-to-face with Jesus, and the miracle is going to happen. So here's my question for the church. Here's my question for KCP. Do you have hope? Do you actually believe deep down in your heart of hearts that Jesus can heal blank? Maybe that person, that family member, that roommate, that coworker, that neighbor. Do you actually believe deep down, do you have hope that Jesus can perform miracle? Now, here's what you got to remember. At this point, these four friends, all they've heard are stories of Christ's sermons. They heard rumors that he'd perform miracles. But you and I, guess what? We live on this side of the cross and the resurrection. How much greater and deeper and stronger should our hope be in the very power of Jesus? So good friends have hope. But second, we see this. Good friends take risk. They take risk. Have you ever thought about this? This is unique about our culture. We will go to extreme lengths and measures to get into the presence of a celebrity or singer. Anybody identify with that? I know we got some mamas, maybe some 20-year-old single ladies in the group who sacrificed hours on Ticketmaster.com so that they could get into the presence of Taylor Swift. Anybody? Okay, you don't have to raise hands on that one. Okay, I'll give you a couple more examples. We'll go to the next slide. Uh, this is a teen. Oh, this is a teen. Um, excuse me. This is a 44-year-old man named Carl McCoy. Okay, and he actually spent $1,000 getting at least 15 tattoos, all dedicated to Miley Cyrus. And he said this, I'm hoping that Miley's agent, okay, will hear about me via Twitter, and then will pass the message on to Miley. He went to extreme lengths, inking his body to get the attention of Miley Cyrus. Next one. Okay, this is a teen. Her name is Sarah Thompson. If you notice right here, she actually dove in front of a car that was carrying Justin Bieber, and this is the most teenager thing ever. She took a selfie, okay, while this car is about to roll over her, and she said this, got hit by a car twice today, but it's, a, but it's okay because I love you, Justin Bieber, heart emoji, okay? And the last, this is the most extreme one. This is a 33-year-old named Linda Risa. She actually legally changed her name. Uh, to Kanye Risa West. Now, that didn't age well, okay? <laughs> Kanye Risa West, but it says this. This is her quote. In 2011, I legally changed my name so that I could use my name to get near the man I really love. I was doing it to stand out 
and to get his attention. Okay, so do you see this? These are super fans, and they say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get near this celebrity. I'll dive in front of a car. I'll ink my body. I'll literally change my name just so this celeb will give me some attention. And do you see this? A good friend has the same heart, the same mentality. The good friend says this, I'm willing to do whatever it takes so that I can get Jesus' attention, so I can get the eyes of Christ on me. And so these men show up to the house. They open the door, and they realize what? It's packed out. It's crowded. I mean, the people are shoulder to shoulder, and they can't push their way through to get to Jesus. So what do they do? Do they shrug their shoulders, and they say, I guess it was a bad plan. We might as well head home. No. They say, let's improvise. Let's get crazy. And they walk up those stair steps. They go to the roof, and they cut a six-foot hole. Now, here's what you got to understand about this roof. There were beams, think like four by fours, and then there were sticks and thatch, and there was mud, and this passage also says there was tiles on top. So these guys are banging, they're doing demo, they're trying to break through this roof so that they can drop their friend right in front of Jesus. And here's the point, and this is where you got to listen to me, church. See, some of you are probably getting a little excited. I want to bring my friends near Jesus. I want to get my friends near Jesus. Here's where you got to pay attention. If you're going to be about this business, it's going to get messy. It's going to be dirty. Your hands are going to get calloused. It's a chaotic, it's a dirty job. See, if you're going to bring your friends near Jesus, it requires sacrifice. Do you see these men? They make physical sacrifices. They give up their time, their energy, and their comfort. But the big sacrifice that usually holds us back It's the social sacrifice, isn't it? And once again, remember the crowd? They're scribes. They're Pharisees. They're the elite. They're the who's who of the community. And more than likely, they looked up as these rocks and sticks and dirt was falling from the ceiling. They saw these heads peering over, and they thought, what about these four friends? They're crazy. They're insane. Maybe they're even criminals. They took a big risk. It was a social risk. So here's my question for the church. What are you risking to bring your friends near Jesus? What roofs are you willing to remove? What barriers are you willing to break down? Because here's the thing. We're a pretty nice, neat, buttoned up church, but we tend to play it safe. We tend to do the comfortable things. So why don't we risk? Why do we so often play it safe? Well, here's three things that I hear most often. First off, I hear people saying this, well, Ben, this is usually the young believers, the guys and girls who just came to Christ. I just don't know enough. The Bible's so big and my knowledge is so small. Well, what about these men? Do they have contractor's licenses? Do they go to get their demolition training? Do they unroll a blueprint? No, they had no training and they just said, let's figure it out. Let's get our hands dirty. Some of you might think this to yourself, well, there's no way Jesus could heal him. There's no way Jesus could heal her. We tend to write people off. We put them in this category of too far gone, too sinful, too addicted, too broken, or maybe it's too late in life. Well, here's my question. Was this man too paralyzed to receive the healing of Jesus? No. Well, no one is too sinful to receive forgiveness from Christ. But here's the one I hear most often. I hear this, well, Ben, there's just not an open door. 
I'm not experiencing, I'm not sensing, I'm not receiving an open door to get this man or this woman near Jesus. And this is what we call open door theology. You ever heard of open door theology? It's basically this. We just take the path of least resistance. Anytime it gets messy, it gets difficult, we just say, it's what? It ain't an open door, it must be a closed door. And we, we say this, I'll evangelize as long as it's comfortable, easy, and cozy. I'll walk through the door as long as it's comfortable. And then when it, evangelism inevitably gets messy, it gets difficult, it requires some sacrifice, we throw up the white flag and we say what? It must be a closed door. Well, let me, show you, let me share with you a quick story because I believe this, okay, that there's sometimes it might appear like a closed door and God is simply calling us to kick down the door. I think you guys know this. Now my family lives behind Maple Street. Before I got married, I lived on Maple Street. And, and about 15 years ago, all the fraternity houses were on Maple Street. It was like Pike and Kappa Sig and Chi Phi. And we lived right next to a fraternity house, okay? So we were next door neighbors with a fraternity house. And it was, you know, pretty exciting, as you can imagine, okay? Uh, most Thursday nights, I wasn't sleeping. I was rolling over to the frat house, and they would, like, hide their natty lights behind their back. And we would have great conversations late into life. But I remember one week, it was probably 2012, it was, uh, it was homecoming weekend. So I'm like prepared. It's going to be a little rowdy over here, you know, on Maple Street. And so on Thursday night, I mean, they are having this banging party, and it's 4 a.m., and I've got my, my noise machine turned up. I've, you know, taken the melatonin, and I still can't sleep. It's 4 in the morning. I look out my window. I kid you not, there's one guy from the fraternity doing the Cupid shuffle all by himself on the back porch. So I like get out of bed in my boxers. I just walk right by them and I unplug the stereo and go back to bed, okay? So next night rolls around. I'm like, I'm not gonna make that mistake. I'm gonna go spend the night with some friends. I'm gonna let, their ha let them have their fun. So it's homecoming week. You got alumni coming back, you know, reliving the glory days at the old frat house. And so I spend the night, I get back to my house Sunday morning. I'm gonna take a shower, change. I'm gonna come to church. And I open my front door and I walk in. I'm like, it's kind of chilly in here. And there's a draft coming through, and I look to where my back door used to be, okay? And there's like this gaping hole. I'm like, what in the world is going on? And the door's not open, the door is on the floor. And on top of the floor is a 300-pound, passed-out graduate of this fraternity. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? So I get a little closer, and I realize this guy is Frank the Tank, okay? And the reason why they call him Frank the Tank, he was built like a tank, and he could drink like a tank. And so I tap him lovingly, just kidding. I about kicked him in the ribs. I'm like, Frank, what in the world is going on? And after a few minutes, he rubs his eyes, and he looks at me, and he mutters under his breath. He goes, I thought this was the frat house, okay? So as we start piecing it together, what I quickly realize is late one night, he thought he was knocking on his frat house door, and the guys were playing a joke on him. So he tries to kick the door open, and then he gets down in a three-point stance, fires off the ball, and he ran right through our back door and passed out on top of it. Okay? You can't make this up. So, what can we learn from Frank the Tank? Well, there's a lot of things we don't need to learn from Frank the Tank. Okay, first off, parents are going to love this. Okay, kids... Don't get drunk, okay? Don't destroy other people's property and don't sleep in places that are not your home. Did I cover my bases there, parents? Okay. But if there's one thing we can learn is this, okay? Is that Frank encountered an obstacle. 
And he didn't wave the white flag. He didn't surrender, and he didn't play it safe. He improvised. He said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get back in my home, to get back in my frat house, and we should have the same mentality. Improvise, find a way, do whatever it takes to get our friends near Jesus. Our hope, our love, our belief in Jesus should be so strong that just like Frank, we say, I got to find a way. I got to find a way. So here's our last point. Okay, a good friend has hope. A good friend is willing to take a risk, maybe even kick a door down. And most importantly, a good friend gets big rewards. You get big rewards, sometimes even more than you expected. See, this is the climax of the story right here. This man is lowered down right in front of Jesus. They're a couple inches across from each other. They're face to face, eyeball to eyeball. Jesus opens a mouth and he looks at a man who's never walked. And the first thing he says is what? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that seems a little strange knowing the context, right? And if you were one of the four friends, you might be thinking to yourself, I'm a little confused. Why aren't you dealing with this paralysis Why are you dealing with this sin? This is very instructive. And the order is critical. It's crucial. Because all throughout Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the great physician, meaning he is an expertly trained spiritual doctor. And he is trained to deal with the greatest need. Now think about this story. This was a headline story just a couple weeks ago. There There was a football player for the Buffalo Bills named Damar Hamlin. And DeMar Hamlin went into cardiac arrest. He got hit up high. He went into cardiac arrest during an NFL football game. Literally, his heart stopped beating. And if you saw, you know, the highlights, the clips of this, I mean, medics and team trainers and the team docs rushed out to the field. Now, think just for a moment. What if as he was falling back and in order to brace his fall, DeMar Hamlin actually broke his little finger? He broke his pinky. And the team doc gets out there, he checks his pulse, he realizes that this player, his heart isn't beating, but before he addresses the heart, starts administering CPR or breaking out the paddles, he starts working on the pinky. He resets the bone, he measures it, he tapes it up and he puts it in a splint. Now if you were watching that, what would you scream? What would you yell out without any medical training? All right, without even a moment in med school, you would say what to the doc? It's irresponsible for you not to deal with the man's greatest need. You'd be screaming at your TV, deal with the heart, target the heart. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's doing the exact same thing. His actions are suggesting that your greatest need, my greatest need, it's not physical, it's spiritual. And as important as it is to walk, it's more important to be forgiven. See, Jesus wants to heal our heart more than he wants to heal our body. We said this in Psalm 105. Do you see this? God forget, or he heals our disease, but he also forgives our, forgives our sins. So how do we get this healing? How do we receive this type of forgiveness? Because keep in mind, this man's a paralytic. He can't walk. He's incapable of getting near Jesus. But we see this. He is forgiven through faith. He's forgiven through faith. His legs were weak, but his faith was strong. And here's what's really interesting. If you remember this passage, if you're reading it right here, Mark actually notices that he actually says their faith. It's in the plural. It's not the singular. doesn't say his faith. It says their faith. So what's going on here? Well, I think it's simply this, that real faith is contagious. 
that faith in Jesus, it actually influences other people. And we see this all throughout scripture. Remember Abraham, Father Abraham, he placed his faith in God and it influenced what? All of his family tree, all of his descendants. In fact, an entire nation, the nation of Israel. What about you mamas and daddies who love Jesus and place your faith in God? It what? It spreads to your sons and daughters. What about you prayer warriors who are praying for the salvation of a family member and friend? God hears those prayers. He sees your faith and he rewards it with salvation. Faith influences other people. Now look at, let's look at this statement. The one thing that Jesus has said so far. He says this. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Do you see this? Jesus is explaining the two benefits you receive when you place your faith in God. The first is this. He calls him son. When you place your faith in God, you immediately join the family of God. You're adopted. God becomes your father. And then second, you receive forgiveness. You receive your forgiveness. This is spiritual healing. And forgiveness is a free gift. Now let's unpack this idea of forgiveness real quickly. Because if you ever thought about this, whenever you want healing, you might freely receive it, but it always comes at a cost. Think about your physical healing. You might have an appointment, a surgery, uh, some sort of treatment. You might receive it freely, but it always comes at a cost. I experienced this a couple weeks ago, or really a couple months ago. Uh, right around Thanksgiving week, okay, I went to the cafeteria, as I usually do, uh, and I ate way too much. Okay, I probably had like four plates of food because the Z6 was doing some sort of like Thanksgiving dinner, and it was incredible. And I remember getting home, and I was like, Leah, my stomach is killing me. I think I just ate too much cafeteria food. And that happens. You guys know that, right? Uh, the cafeteria food can put a hurting on you. But as we're getting like closer and closer tonight, I'm like, Leah, it is really hurting. And I actually look at my stomach, and it was starting to inflate a little bit. And it was about 1 in the morning. Okay, I was like, I'm just going to lay down and try to go to sleep. And I break out into a cold sweat. And I'm like hunched over, and Leah was like, go to the hospital. She actually said, I'll take you to the hospital. I was like, okay, I think we need to do it. So I started like hunch out. I couldn't even straight stand up straight, okay? And I'm nervous. I'm like, I'm going to get to the ER, and they're going to give me like prescription strength, gas X. It's going to be so embarrassing. <laughs> so I get there, and they run a quick blood test, and a guy comes out 30 minutes later. Guess what he says? He says, your appendix is about to rupture. I was like, okay. Leah was right, okay? Female intuition. <laughs> Couple hours later, okay, Colby Williamson comes in. He's like cutting up. Okay, they put me under. They re remove my appendix. Okay, and literally 12 hours later, I'm leaving the hospital. Okay, I got some pain meds. I got a big scar over my belly, and I got a bill. And it was a big bill. And here's what I realized in this moment. Okay, is that healing always comes at a price. Surgery comes at a price. Now, we forget this because we're Americans and insurance usually covers it. But the point is this. If you want healing, somebody's got to pay. And hopefully it's the insurance company, but somebody has to pay. So here's the question. What did it cost Jesus to heal you? Jesus was to hold up the bill. What is the price for the forgiveness of sins? The New Testament would answer this question, that we are healed or we are forgiven through the blood of of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness is a gift. You can have it today. It is freely received, but it was costly for Christ. He sacrificed his life for you. And so do you see this? When Jesus looks at this man and says, son, your sins are forgiven, do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, first, 
paralytic, you've sinned against me because I'm the almighty God. I'm the son of man. But, so he confronts him, but second he says, I love you enough to die in your place. And two years from now, three years from now, paralytic, I will die in your place on the cross. What's the final statement Jesus speaks to this man? He says what? At the very end, in the conclusion, he says, rise, pick up your bed, and walk home. So how do you know if you've truly been healed? How do you know if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and received forgiveness? Will you walk a new life? You live a new life. This man probably skipped the whole way home. He was probably hopping, jumping, singing, running back and forth, making his first steps in his life. But when you receive the forgiveness of God, when you walk in faith, it gives you joy and it leads to a new life. So here's where we'll wrap it up. We looked at two groups, two types of people. First off, we looked at the paralytic. And maybe you identify with the paralytic. You might say to yourself, well, Ben, well, I can move, but there's real pain in my life. Life is tough. I'm facing daily challenges, and I just want blank to change. I want this relationship to change, this situation to change, this problem to change. And here's what you need to imagine just for a moment, that right now Jesus is looking at you just like this paralytic. He's eyeball to eyeball. And he's not upset that your life is messy. He's not upset that you've kicked up a bunch of dirt, but he's glad. And he longs to forgive you. And just like this paralytic, he looks into your eyes and he says what? You've sinned against me and yet I want to. I'm eager to, I desire to forgive you. So if you identify with that type of person, ask yourself, who are the good friends in my life? You might be sitting next to them. You probably have good friends who've done whatever it takes to bring you near Jesus. Maybe they've texted you. They stayed up late with you. They've served you. They've sacrificed for you. And they want nothing more than you to simply do this. Confess your spiritual paralysis and put your faith in Jesus. Because only Jesus forgives. But there's a second type of person. The men and women in this room who want to be good friends. But when we get honest and examine our life, guess what? Instead of being hopeful, oftentimes we're hopeless. Instead of risking for Jesus, we play it safe and fail to sacrifice. Very often we fail to remove roofs and barriers to bring people near Jesus. We experience closed doors and we just shrug our shoulders and walk away. Well, here's the good news. You and I, we might not be good friends, but we have a good friend in Jesus. Amen? Because Jesus is the BBF, right? The biblical best friend we need. Because you know this, the paralytic story is our story. Because there was a barrier, there was a roof that kept us from being in relationship with God. And it was impenetrable. Okay? It was stronger. It was more concrete than beams and mud and bricks. It was our sin. And Jesus said, you can't break through the ceiling. doesn't matter how hard you try. You can bring a hammer. You can bring a sledgehammer. You ain't going to break through. And what did Jesus do? He sacrificed his life to, to put a six-foot hole through so that we can be in relationship with God. And this is why we should be good friends. This is why we should do it whatever it takes. Because Jesus was the best friend we all need. Jesus was willing to sacrifice to do whatever it takes to bring us into the presence of God. 
Jesus is the good friend. And Jesus says this in John 15. He says, there is no greater love than someone who would lay down their life for a friend. So King's Chapel, isn't this what we want? Don't we want to be a group, a community of men and women who are known for being good friends? I mean, can you imagine what would happen in our city? Can you dream what would happen in our community if when people pointed to this church, they said, that's a church that is filled with good friends. This would be a city that's filled with awe and wonder. So here's my encouragement to a church that plays it safe, that sometimes doesn't risk. Let's not settle for the mundane. Jesus wants the miraculous. May our city say, we, we have never seen anything like this. So here's what this means for our church. It's time to risk. It's time to get a little messy. It's time for our hands to get dirty. It's time for us to be good friends. Why? Because Jesus was our good friend. Jesus was willing to do whatever it takes to bring us near God. So my question for you is this, okay? Who's your one? Who are you going after? Who are you saying, whatever it takes, I'll remove roofs, I'll break through barriers, I'll get my hands dirty to bring this one into the presence of God. Let me pray, and then we'll go to the table. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, I, I pray for the men and women in this room who realize I need healing, I need forgiveness. Lord, maybe for the first time we would recognize that you offer this gift freely. You not only want to heal our bodies, you want to heal our hearts. So Lord, we, we, we just ask for healing, maybe for the first time. Lord, I pray for this church also that we would be known as good friends, that we wouldn't play it safe, that we wouldn't do the easy thing, we wouldn't take the path of least resistance, that our hope, our belief, our love for you as our ultimate good friend would compel us to risk socially and risk physically and break through ceilings and kick through doors and do whatever it takes to bring people near Jesus. God, we thank you for your table. We thank you that you are the good friend, that you sacrificed to bring us near to God. We bless your name, amen.